Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in Etienne Hardray's study. What, it was like a little closet, a little shed? It was a garden shed when we bought the house. And okay. we were looking at the house and looking for spaces to have friends over and create spaces like this and have cigars, especially out of the weather. And uh, we had already decided we wanted this house for a variety of reasons, but when we walked into this little space... Oh, no. We were sold. The wood that's yeah. on the walls, was this already in here? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you guys put this up. So it was just up. studs. It was just a garden shed studs, but the owners had done some nice stuff to the outside. So it stuck out on the outside, towel roof. There was a window in, nice double doors on it. But other than that, what would you say this is? This is probably 10 feet by 6 feet, something like that? I'd say about 7 by... 15? Yeah, something like that. So it's not huge. We can fit five people in here comfortably. And it was just studs. So over the summer, this last summer, I insulated the whole thing. And then I found old fence wood that somebody had torn down an old fence and had just stacked the wood up to the side. And they were selling the whole lot of it for, I don't know, 20 bucks or something like that. And uh, just paneled the entire interior with that. And then uh, went out east and got some corrugated metal from an old shed out there and slapped it on the ceiling. And we added the little fan. The electrical is easy to do when everything was, it was just studs. Yeah. And uh, the fan has a Bluetooth speaker in it, so we get a little music that way. And other than that, it's just collected knickknacks and pictures and cigar boxes over the a years. fan with friends. a Bluetooth speaker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the things they make these days, man. <laughs> Technology is amazing. All right, so we are going to get to your story, but as always, first question, what you smoking? Well, I am smoking this cigar you just brought over for me, Providencia's Kill Shots, which, as I understand, is one of the newest in their line. It's kind of a double Corona in shape, right? Not quite a Lancero, but not quite long enough to be a Lancero, but otherwise about that diameter, I'd say it's probably a 48, yeah, somewhere in there. So it's probably a double Corona. It's probably a Churchill length. The wrapper on the outside is light brown, almost a rosado color, and really thin and fragile. So be a little careful with it. But when I punched the end, it didn't break or anything like that. So it's pretty well aged. It's pretty durable. One thing I noticed is that there appears to be two different colors of tobacco in the butt end of this thing. One's much darker than the other, so maybe they use two different kinds of filler. But so far I'm only 10% in, and there's a little hint of bitterness, but there's almost no spice. There's a bit of floral overtone, but otherwise it's pretty earthy, not very fruity, but I would say earthy, solid, medium smoke. That is probably the most detailed review of <laughs> of a stick that I have ever received in all the interviews that I have done thus far. Well, that, we'll that was impressive. <laughs> that was impressive. And then I also have a Providencia. We got a few from Raymond at Providencia. He has another order coming in soon, so he gave me kind of just a handful of sticks. I have the Bloodshot, which is more of a Maduro-looking stick, mm-hmm. and it's got real nice flavor to it, and so... Mm-hmm. First time I've had the bloodshot. Yeah, I've had that one before. It's good. Yeah. So, Etienne, Mm -hmm. to let the listeners know a little bit about our history, Mm -hmm. I first met you, it had to have been 2011. I'd probably say around May. Okay. Yeah, that's about right. I think. 
and I was working at Family Talk. I mm -hmm. just left Focus to go help start Family Talk with Dr. Dobson mm -hmm. in 2010. Mm -hmm. And within one year, Craig Johnson came in as the COO, mm -hmm. and he hired you and raved about you <laughs> as you know, Colorado Springs Business Journal Young Entrepreneur of the Year, or Up and Comer, or Ones to Watch. And he just like went on and on. I'm like, this dude looks all right. And so we had a season that we worked together. Yeah, that was a good And time. I really enjoyed, would loved going into your office and just kind of talking. Mm -hmm. I had no idea you liked cigars at the time, mm -hmm. which if I had known, mm -hmm. I would have had a reason to get some more cigars and hang mm -hmm. out with you a little bit more mm -hmm. outside of work. But we've I, made I, up I, for lost time. <laughs> absolutely. Oh my gosh. But when you came in mm -hmm. during the morning devotions, you gave your mm -hmm. testimony, your story. You mm -hmm. told your story about everything that you had been through, where mm -hmm. you've come. And I was absolutely blown away by it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was seriously impressed because here's a dude who is sharp. He's smart. He has an idea, has a clue. And yet the stuff that you came out of, you usually don't see people in a position like yours where you've got stuff together, usually you see people that have gone through what you've gone through in a much different situation. Mm -hmm. So unpack those early years for mm -hmm. listeners mm -hmm. to kind of really understand where you came from. So that way we can kind of take them to where you are and where you're going. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Steve. I think most people tell me exactly what you just said. I've heard a lot of people say that, especially people who have any kind of experience with childhood trauma or kids that have been on the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak. But the reality is when I look back on my childhood, I don't see myself as having that much of an abnormal childhood. It just kind of went to some extremes. Went sideways some, pretty yeah, quick. Yeah, in some key places that I think most of the time it doesn't happen that way for people. But I think if you actually dig into what's underneath... Most people would say, yeah, I've been through situations like that. Yeah. So the reality is it's not so unrelatable. But I think the magnitude of it was what shocks most people. So just to back up, when I was a kid, I was the oldest of four kids, two boys, two girls. and Grew up in Oregon. Grew up in Oregon. We're in actually Oregon. born in California, but grew up in Southern Oregon. Okay. So if you're familiar with the whole West Coast, man, that was my stomping grounds. I've swam every lake and every river and fished every stream and every pond and camped under every spreading tree and climbed every mountain. Yeah, those are my stomping grounds. So I know everything from Shasta to Bachelor to the Three Sisters all the way up yeah. by Eugene. and Oh, yeah, I know everything. So cool area to grow up, kind of a mix of everything. But small, especially at the time. Now it's kind of up and coming because it's the only other large metropolitan area south of Eugene, I suppose, and north of like Redding or Sacramento. Yeah. So there's not a whole lot out in that part of the world. My dad and my mom met in college. My dad became the first Christian convert in his family, and his family was fairly wealthy. He was the youngest of six kids, so he was kind of the baby. His dad died when he was young. His dad and his mom were both physicians, so they had lots of money, yeah. but they were very secular. So he was not raised in a religious household, but through navigators at college, came to the Lord. My mom had the reverse experience. She was poor and was raised roughly Christian most of her life. The way they tell it is that she felt like God was telling her to marry my dad. Now that's significant because of the psychology that goes between the two of them as I've wrestled with kind of 
how did they become the way that they were? Mm-hmm. And how do I avoid becoming that way? Because very early on, my dad and my mom had trouble in their relationship. And that was mostly expressed with my mom sort of abandoning her dreams and my dad being abusive, mostly to the children. So to me and my brothers and sisters. I went to jail twice when I was a kid for child abuse, mm-hmm. physical abuse, not sexual abuse, physical abuse. And what were your mom's dreams? You said she abandoned yeah, her dreams. Yeah, so she's gone, she went back to those eventually. She was a teacher. Okay. And so she was actually midway through her master's degree program, or I think had just finished her master's degree program when she was pregnant with me. And so she stopped doing that to sort of raise her family, but she was fast-tracking to her PhD. I think she finished both her bachelor's and her master's inside four years, four-eyed scholarship the whole way. Wow. Super intelligent. Honestly, as I look back, to knock on my mom at all, but it wasn't so much that she was super intelligent, is that she really knew the educational system very well. Mm. That's really what it came down to. Mm. And so in that way, when she expressed herself in the education system, she always got the highest marks. Yeah. She knew how to work that system very well, knew, knew what they were asking for, knew how to provide them what they were asking for. Yeah. So for her, it was simple. It was easy. And being a teacher, in the classic sense of being disciplined and putting together a good syllabus and having a body of knowledge you wanted to transfer to another human being, she was excellent at that. So she homeschooled us, took us out of public school and homeschooled us. And I was homeschooled most of my childhood, which in the 80s... was very unusual. was very unusual. She had to get a special allowance from the school district. We had to pass standardized testing every year. And it also meant that I had zero friends and almost no interpersonal interaction with anyone. Mm. I remember... Because yeah, it's, it's not like how it is now right. with homeschooling, where there's so many co-ops yeah. and homeschool groups and churches that have mm-hmm. co-ops and homeschool groups mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's a phenomenal support system for homeschool kids nowadays. My kids are homeschooled, but they go to the university school down in Old Colorado City yeah. three days a week with teachers and friends and yeah. the whole nine yards. And then they send them home the curriculum for Monday and Friday. I mean, it's this beautiful partnership between parents and school. It's almost hard to say that they're really homeschooled, and yet they are. We get to drive their education. Yeah. So that kind of lays everything out for you. So I've got this abusive dad. Really, the reason why he was abusive, in my humble opinion, even though it probably shouldn't go to that stretch, but the reason why he was abusive, I think, is because where my mom was successful at everything she did, my dad was a failure at everything he did. Oh. Everything he put his hand to just didn't seem to work out. And it wasn't that he was a bad person or not smart. He was incredibly intelligent. And he was a good hard worker too, but he had just the wrong failings in just the wrong areas where people didn't really want to work with him. And so everything he put his hand to just wouldn't succeed. He started a degree and ended up with a different degree. He tried to start a business that ended up failing. He got a job here or there and he ended up working as a landscaper for the longest time and just literally digging ditches. So his parents are physicians And this guy has a horticulture degree, a four-year horticulture degree, and he's described himself as a ditch digger to me as a kid growing up. So I remember working in the garden with my dad, working on jobs with my dad, moving rocks, moving dirt, building parts of our house, just all manual labor, all grunt work. And I think my mom, in subtle psychological ways, let him know she was disappointed that everywhere that he failed that she could have succeeded and that she thought he should have succeeded and that he was Mm. letting her down. 
And so as a man, that really strikes to the core of who you are. Yeah. And the only opportunity then, and what she would do is then she would have trouble disciplining us kids with whatever, you know, something would happen during the day. And so he would come home from work frustrated and everything not working out. And she would say, well, you need to discipline your kids. They did X, Y, and Z. And he doesn't really know what we did wrong. But now he has to take back his manhood by disciplining us. Mm. And he also is trying to prove something to his wife that he is man enough. Mm. And that combo was just out of control. And so it led to a serious anger problem with him. And so he would just discipline us and then cross a line that you really ought not to cross with kids. And that's where it turned into abuse. So I grew up in absolute terror of my dad. And my mom would say, you know, when your dad comes home, I'm going to tell him. And I would just hide. I knew I was going to get a licking. I was going to get a beating. And it was going to be followed with a lecture about everything under the sun. And it was probably going to take hours. And it was just going to be the most miserable thing I'd ever done. And he kept coming up with more and more creative ways of trying to discipline us. And they just kept getting more and more abusive. So... Eventually, when I was about, I forget how old, maybe nine, he was officially out of the house. The court had finally ordered him that he couldn't live with us anymore. Yeah. And so my mom didn't really want to divorce him. Again, she had these religious reasons for not wanting to divorce him. So they stayed separated for years. The reality is, as I look back on it, my mom wasn't a whole lot better either because she had her own problems. And so she was more of the type of uh, subtly psychological or emotionally abusive. And it wasn't overt and she didn't really beat us, but it still caused damage, lasting damage. And so we had these two extremes that we constantly tried to live between and really we just tried to stay out of the way. My problem is I was the oldest and I had zero good positive role models in my life. And I didn't even have friends I could look to. And the only thing that I could hold on to was that I was ridiculously good at working the educational system. So passed every <laughs> test I ever took, aced every thing I ever did. When my mom finally turned to the public school system, I was in sixth grade. She needed a free babysitter because she was now a single mom and she was working. We had lived on food stamps up to that point and she was working. She had gotten an adjunct faculty teaching position at the university, at Southern Oregon University. But that was in the next town over, actually three towns over. And so she had to drive over there. So she had to drop my brothers and sisters off. So I walked across town to school most of the time or rode my bike, but my bike was in terrible disrepair. So half the time I would get a flat tire and then I'm pushing my bike across town. It was bad. So I just remember these long periods of time where I'm walking back and forth across town to go either home or to school. And I was usually the first guy at school in the morning. The librarian would unlock the door and I'd spend all day at school and I'm the last kid to leave. Oh, and that's because my mom was trying to balance all this stuff, right? Which is fine, but I clung to the fact that intellectually I had a strength. That was my only real strength. So um, During that time, did you ever see your dad? Supervised visits or anything like that? Occasionally, but really, really rarely. I don't really remember seeing him much during that time, no. Hmm. I remember my early childhood with him, and then I remember this just period of nothing. Hmm. I don't really remember anything. It was just negative things that we heard about him. It was never positive. I think my mom was subtly ratcheting up the negativity and making him out to be the bad guy. Maybe because she was feeling pain in her own life and was just kind of trying to share that with us. But whatever, all I got was a negative picture and I don't really remember much interaction with him. So, 
kids are very impressionable and they'll pick up what is passed down from their fathers whether they're around their fathers or not honestly and so I began to emulate my dad in the same way and began to act out with violence and with theft and with emotional psychological and physical abuse against my brothers and sisters as well being the oldest and the strongest and not having any other friends to deal with or mm. become a man around or anything I did that and my mom and my dad both tried, my dad early on tried to beat it out of me and that didn't work. I just didn't have the tools to deal with what I was struggling with, the frustration and the anger and the fear. I didn't have any tools to deal with any of that stuff. My mom later on tried to ignore it for a while and then also tried to beat it out of me and then tried to punish it out of me, but there were few punishments that would work because I was such an introvert and I was so intellectual that if you locked me in my room, I would sit there and read books till next morning. Like it wouldn't matter. Like, I didn't care. This was the environment I grew up in. All alone, in my room, didn't matter. So there wasn't a whole lot you could do. What I needed was I needed somebody to step in and say, hey, looks like you're struggling with some stuff. Let's talk about it. Let me give you some ideas on how to channel those emotions in the right direction. Oh, man. That would have done a world of difference in my life. Yeah. Instead, what it did was it became acting out in these ways until my mom finally got fed up from it. And she turned to the only source, I think, that she thought she could turn to, which was Children's Services Division, which is CSD, I don't know what they call it here, Human Services, maybe DHS. And I remember going into a room with a couple of guys, they interviewed me, interviewed my brothers and sisters, locked me to the inside of the car, took me off to JDH, Juvenile Detention Hall, and I never went home. I was 12 years old. So the story I was told as I was going that direction was... You know, if you just do what we ask you to do and do what's right and this will all go well. You know, the better that you behave, the better that this is going to go for you. But I didn't know why I was going in there. I didn't know. I knew I'd done wrong things. So I just assumed that I deserved it. And being a 12 year old kid, you don't you don't really argue your own case unless you're a belligerent asshole. And I wasn't. Yeah, I was really trying to be a good kid. And so but you um, had so much going on internally because of the abuse that you had taken Mm -hmm. and not really having any guide. Yeah. So I didn't have any way of wrestling through that kind of stuff. So I just bottled it up and then dealt with it in a way any kid would... I mean, I just literally trial and error. I mean, I'm just guessing. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just guessing. And I was guessing poorly. Yeah. I, I admit that. I was doing it poorly. But looking back on it, if my kids did the same thing, I would recognize it as a cry for help and start digging in with them and helping them deal with it. Mm. That never happened for me. So I went to juvenile detention hall, which is a cell. It's a lockdown cell. It's just like every other prison cell you've ever seen in the movies or ever been in. And I sat there. And of course, this is the environment I thrived in, remember? Mm-hmm. So I read every book in the library and I just sat there. And I must have been there for three months or six months or something. I mean, it was a ridiculously long time. Wow. It was so long that, you know, all the guards and the treatment officers and stuff like that knew me on first name basis. I went to the little school that they had in the JDH there. And as long as I had enough books, I was fine, but it was really just me and God and struggle. And I remember having so many conversations with God. I was raised Christian, remember, by Christian yeah. parents. So I went to church, went to Awana, thrived in those environments, memorizing scripture and all that stuff. But I didn't have any way of knowing how God actually would lead my life. So I just sat there with him. And I was sad and angry. And I yelled at him a lot. Mm. And I remember frustration and loneliness But I do remember distinctly that God never left me. Jesus was always there with me, walking me through the whole process, Mm. which is an amazing thing to me. I can say that I have hit rock bottom, hit that bottom where you know that there's nothing else that you can do, that your whole life, every minute of it, 
is controlled by somebody else. Yeah. And I didn't think I would ever get better. And Jesus was standing right there with me. Hmm. So I went from there to a shelter home while they waited for a place to put me. I was probably at the shelter home for another six months, which is a long time for a transitional shelter home. Usually those kids are in and out in a week. I was there so long that I started going back to my public school. It was across town. So I was the only kid that they let go out, get on the bus, the public bus at 12 years old, all the way across town to my school and go to school and come home. They would search my bag when I left and search my bag when I came back. I was the only kid that they allowed to do that. Everybody else, there was a school on site that they went to. I was just a guy who came in and taught. There, was, there were like 10 kids in the shelter. So finally they found me a spot at a boy's ranch in Oregon, which had a very strict psychological treatment program that they would go through. And if you graduate from this program, you're considered rehabilitated. Because that means that the treatment counselors have walked through with you everything, the way you're thinking, and you've changed it. Mm-hmm. The errors in your thinking, the way you think about people, the way you deal with your emotions and all that stuff, and you've changed and you've learned new tools for it. So I was there for like a year and a half, maybe two years. I can't quite remember. I was almost 14, I think, by the time I got out, which is, again, a long time. And you graduate through various level programs. Did you see your mom at all, siblings, during that time? (sighs) Never saw my siblings. My dad came and visited me a couple of times. And my mom came and visited me a couple of times. And during one of those times, she told me that they were getting a divorce. So that was it. I got a letter... Did she ever talk to you about what was going on internally for Mm -hmm. her at Mm -hmm. this time? Nope. Mm -mm. That's one of the things that I have never been able to get from my mom. I think what she has done in order to shield herself from the pain was to bottle up those emotions. I don't know how she deals with them herself, but she's not the kind of person who deals with them openly with other people. Mm -hmm. At least not in my experience. Certainly doesn't do it with me. And so she didn't do it in that time. I think she was trying to be stoic, trying to be strong, trying to still be there for me, but it was very distant. I did not feel like I had a relationship with somebody who was waiting for me. In fact, I finally did graduate the program. And like I said, when you graduate, you are done. Mm -hmm. You are done, done. Everybody who graduated went home with their families. Their families showed up for the graduation and went home with their families that night. When I woke up the next morning, still at the boys' home, after my graduation day. And you'd probably seen other other boys graduate with their families there. There were five of them that night. It was like one of the biggest nights of graduation they'd ever had. And you were alone. Well, I was there with the other kids that didn't graduate. But and they were family. all like, what? Why are you still here? I thought you were done. We just had the graduation ceremony for you last night. My dad showed up for the ceremony. My mom and my siblings did not. And I was told I couldn't go home with my dad because my dad was a double convicted child abuser. And I'm still 13 or almost 14. And my mom hadn't come to pick me up. So they said they were waiting to find a place for me. So eventually I caught a ride with a counselor going back towards my hometown and they said they'd found a foster home for me. So I ended up in a foster home after graduating from all that. In your hometown? Near it. Near it? Mm Mm-hmm. Little town called Eagle Point, Oregon. Out in the sticks. But it's a good place. How big was the town? Oh, at the time it was tiny. Now it has like a Walmart and like, you know, it's like grown into the whole Southern Oregon metropolitan area, which is all just one conglomerate of like eight small logging towns yeah. and at the time it was tiny 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 one little gas station one little like stoplight and the high school there though it was the high school that served like all the little areas all around so it was a so bigger school it was a big high school 
Yeah. And we played all the biggest high schools in like football in the state. So we were at the high end of the high school range because we just had kids from up in the mountains that would drive down and come, you know? Yeah. It was crazy. So as God would have it, my foster parents were the most godly people I have still to this day ever met. Mm. They had over a hundred teenage boys go through their home and no kids of their own. And they're gentle and they're kind and they're fun loving and they're loyal, but firm and honest and won't take crap from you. They were exactly what you hoped for people that God designed perfectly to raise teenage boys. And, you know, the state pays you a stipend when you're a foster parent of that kind. And so they use that money to put us up in a fairly good house. Not not a great house, but like a ranch house, you know, out on a ranch. And so we did that. We did ranch chores and we went fishing all the time. He taught me how to fish, taught me how to snowboard, <laughs> took us to youth group every week. Yeah. It was phenomenal. We played board games all the time. We just had a good time. I've heard you describe your foster dad and talk mm. about him. And it's pretty special. So talk mm. about him as an individual and what he meant to you as a teenage boy. Uh, his name's Rick Bender. He worked, side job, in addition to being our foster dad, but he worked as the disciplinarian at our high school. So he got to keep tabs on us all day, every day, which was awesome. How do I describe him? He's funny. He has this wicked sense of humor. He's quick to laugh, but he's very genuine. When you hear somebody describe somebody as salt of the earth, you would describe him perfectly. Mm. He loves fishing yeah. and boating. And at the time, he played golf and raced RC cars. But, you know, then he got a bad back. And so he just loved fishing and hunting and being out in nature and building stuff with his hands. And he has, more than most men that I know, he has this ability to see through into relationships with people. So everybody loves him. Like, he was the disciplinarian at the high school, and he must have sat under a dozen principals, maybe, over the years. A dozen. Teaching them kind of how to do their jobs, even. And every teacher liked him. And every kid, even the problem kids that were in his office all the time, I think ultimately liked him and knew that he had their back, no matter how hard he was on them. And even the parents of kids that he's expelling because they're breaking the rules. I think even they had respect for him because it's just impossible not to respect the man. He's just genuine and honest, but he doesn't take crap, but he's gentle, and it's just a beautiful balance. And he's incredibly loyal. The love that he showed for Lydia, his wife, my foster mom, was just off the chain. His just ability to love her even when we knew that they didn't have a perfect marriage, like every once in a while, you know, people fight. Even then, it was still like he dealt with it differently than I'd ever seen anybody deal with conflict before. Ooh. And that Ooh. was good for me. That was key. I'm sure that was huge. Yeah. Because my parents dealt with it poorly. Yeah. And he loved every one of us kids as though we were their own. And he knew, you know, our names. He knew our parents' names. And he just cared for us. I remember there's this one time where I'd been with them for about a year by that point but I hadn't really submitted myself as their kid right because I was still just in limbo I didn't know what I was doing and I was just I felt tossed from place to place to place and I remember I had broken the rules I'd done something that I knew would hurt them and so we went to our treatment counselor once a week and I fessed up to my counselor and I said look I know I've done this thing that's going to hurt them 
and I don't know what to do because I don't want to let him down. And she said, well, you got to be honest. You need to tell him. So she arranged a meeting. Which is probably something you'd never heard before. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew you had to be honest, but I just knew there was always consequences for that. And they were always painful. (laughs) Painful consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I did. I was honest with them. And I'm weeping. And I'm just sitting there, just a broken kid. I remember both Rick and Lydia, their tears coming down their faces. They just said, we love you. We forgive you. You're our son and nothing will ever change that. Ooh. And that just wrecked me. I think at that point, that's when I fully committed myself. I'm like, I got a new mom and dad. Wow. Pretty cool. So, so that has a way of transforming your life. Oh, absolutely. So you were there through high school? Yeah, all the way until they literally drove me to college and dropped me off and said good luck. Because they couldn't really do a whole lot more for me at that point. They dropped me off at of college. And even after that, I was trying to hold down this job at Red Robin, which was in town. So I would ride the bus into town after college classes were done. I'd ride the bus into town. I would get there just in time for my shift to start. Really, I would actually get there late, so it didn't last very long. The boss eventually said, look, you're showing up late every day. I know what you're doing here, but we need you on time. So, you know, something's got to give. But up until that point, I was showing up there. But by the time my shift was over, the bus was done running. It wouldn't go back. So I went to college the other end of the valley. So we're talking, I went to college in Ashland. Lydia lived in Eagle Point. And so we're talking, that's like an hour difference. You know, 45 minute drive on highways difference. She would drive into town at like 1130 at night when my shift was over. Pick me up, take me all the way back out to Ashland, drop me off and then drive home. Wow. And she must have done that for two months after the state had signed off on me. So at that point, I was like, I can't do this to her anymore. But that was the depth of love that they had for me. That's the way that they showed it for me. Yeah. And they had no obligation. Yeah. None. Just that I was their kid. So you're at Southern Oregon, right? Southern Oregon University. The other Oregon University. (laughs) Where Now, at the time, was your mom still an associate professor Mm -mm. there? Nope. She had left. She had actually left the entire state. She moved to Iowa to go finish her PhD. Yeah. So there I was in Oregon alone. Yeah. And other than my foster parents, I had no one, nothing, no family, nobody to guide me. And here I am, kids starting college, nothing. No one to go home for. In the summers, I would just stay and pay rent at the school. And so I volunteered as this, there's a program where they would rent out the space to like groups that would come through town. They would rent out the dorms and things like that because you're not supposed to be there in the summer. They empty everybody out and then kids are only there during the school year. So if I volunteer, well, I didn't volunteer. I got the job as one of those coordinators. So I would coordinate those groups coming through. And so then they gave me a spot over the summer. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have anywhere to live. I'd have been homeless. And I was 17 years old. Wow. So I couldn't even sign a lease. Couldn't even get a bank. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a bank account. It's crazy. How'd you deal with that? It was being really, I mean, really crazy. alone, 17 years old, being alone, yeah. not having family that you would go stay with during Christmas break or Thanksgiving break or. It was scary. And the Lord just patched things together. It's one of those stories where if we had more time, I would go through and, and I could tell you how, like, we're talking the eve of everybody has to be out and somebody in the dorm would say, hey, where are you going? I don't have anywhere to go. And they would, oh, hey, come on with me. And I would just get into somebody's car and somebody's mom would show up and I would go sleep on somebody's couch. Hmm. And I never knew where I was going to be or what I was going to have or what I was going to do. And I just hoped everything was going well. 
one of my instructors had mercy on me and walked me around the school and like actually helped me figure out some of the things. I didn't know what I was majoring in or how to major in it. I didn't even know how to declare a major. I mean, I had been dropped off at the dorms and I had hoped that there was a place for me. That's the total extent of the planning that was done when I went to college. And I got fortunate in the fact that as an emancipated minor, basically, I didn't have to declare anybody else's income except for my own. So the state basically funded, I'm still paying the student loans, of course, but the government funded all my student loans. Mm. And I got, you know, whatever grants were available, they were just automatically assigned to my account. And I was just the neediest kid in the school, probably. Mm. So there was some financial advisor somewhere who probably just came across my paperwork and just had mercy on me. <laughs> I don't even know how it happened. Yeah. <laughs> so many things like that happen where it's all behind the scenes. I don't know how I survived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but God was working in the shadows, in the darkness, through people I don't even know. I can't even thank properly. So what'd you end up settling on? At what point did you decide computer science was going to be where you wanted to kind of settle? Yeah, so I got a degree in computer science just because I liked computers. I'd always kind of liked computers. I just had this affinity for them. Back in the day, you know, you remember that time. Back in the day, it was like car parts. Computer parts were like car parts. You could dig through the drifty nickel or whatever. And everybody was selling a CPU or an upgraded hard drive. You know, 64 megabytes is going to be great. So we were all plotting how we were going to build the best computer possible. And the next month that, you know, everything was obsolete. And you had to rebuild it all over again and... Pretty soon you realize that this was a losing proposition and everything was just <laughs> a money pit. It really was. Yeah. But because of all that, I just realized that I wanted to get into that. So I got a computer information systems degree, which is basically computer management. And as a result, you had to take a business minor, a business administration minor. So while I was over in the business administration department, I asked them what would it take to extend that to a major? And they said, well, all you got to do is declare a particular track over here and take a few more classes. So then I did that and I declared accounting because I had a pretty good accounting one instructor and she told us that accounting was the language of business. And I said, well, if I'm gonna learn business, I guess I better learn accounting. Seems like the right way to go. So I was doing this double track of computer information systems and an accounting degree over on the side. Half of it was required for both degrees. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty efficient actually. And around about my third year, I think, I realized that I was actually taking enough courses to satisfy for two bachelor's degrees if I just took a couple of extra classes and I was very careful how I finished everything. So I planned everything down to the final detail mm -hmm. and I finished one class in computer science my last semester, one class in accounting my last semester, and one general ed class my last semester. So I satisfied all the requirements for two bachelor's degrees and two certificates in one semester. Wow. Yeah, so I ended up with two full actual bachelor's degrees, which is kind of cool didn't take me a lot of extra time and didn't take me a lot of extra money so I mean it was just set up well at the school I think they had a pretty good marriage between the two tracks and so I took advantage of it now in the episode where we talk with you and your wife Megan mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we talk about how you guys met mm -hmm. so let's just get into that just a little bit because it's, it's a part cool. of it's the a, story yeah, yeah it's a little part of the story so in that part of my time I was not really walking with God is the easiest way to describe it. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out who I was. Because here I am, I'm on my own, I have ultimate freedom, I'm locked down only by the fact that I don't have any money and I don't have any transportation. Those are really the two things that lock me down. So I was trying to figure out who I was. And I certainly didn't want to be 
the introverted social outcast that I had grown up. I had one of my treatment counselors say I would make a great Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh my gosh. She said, look, you're intelligent, you're pretty good looking, and you're totally psychologically messed up. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, thanks. <laughs> That'll hang over you. Dear so, Lord. I was trying to escape that shadow, right? And saying, okay, i got to figure out who I'm going to be. And what I did was I began emulating the people that I saw that were leaders in their spheres. So you get a popular kid over there. Everybody seems to like him. And I would just start acting like that person until finally one of them sort of stuck. And I realized, ooh, actually, I can do it that way. That will work for me. And this extroverted kind of kid sort of came out. I was really pushing hard against... All my old bad habits, all my old character flaws, hmm. I was pushing really hard against it. Hmm. I would try to do almost everything that was uncomfortable. Public speaking, I did tons of public speaking. Taught classes at the school, volunteered for every committee position, or if there was a club on campus and they said, hey, we need a new president, I would run for president. Yeah, I was holding down two different presidents of two different clubs at the same time, what and I was clubs? sitting on a faculty committee. Uh, one we started was called CBIT, the Certified Business Information Technology Students. And then the other one was the Accounting Club, which was actually a pretty prestigious position. Really? Yeah. I mean, like, the best accounting students were on the Accounting Club, and the very best was the president. And I was the president. And I wasn't that great of an accounting student, actually. I mean, I was good, but I was screwing around most of the time. I was trying to figure out who I was. I was doing less on yeah. my... I knew I had the intellectual capacity to satisfy the requirements of my degree. I wasn't worried about that. What I didn't think was I had the social capacity to actually have fun at college, to actually build the relationships that you hear about, people who still know guys that they you know, went to college with. And I didn't think I could do that. So I pushed into that pretty heavily. Yeah. And that's how I met Megan. I was pushing way outside my comfort zone. She was trying to hook me up with her roommate, and I was pushing outside my comfort zone. So she was the certified leader of her little sphere and so I reached as far as I could reach, and she was there. She's a gem. Oh, yeah, she is. She is a gem. Mm -hmm. So you finished school. Mm -hmm. At what point, you guys got married, like, your last year? Or yeah, last year. We were going to do it after school because we said, well, you know, why get married in the middle of school with all this stuff going on? And then we realized if we wait till every one of our friends has graduated and has left, we will have nobody at our wedding. So we, we scheduled it in our senior year. And said, all right, let's get married then. We were living together. It's a very bad model. I don't recommend it. She was going through some emotional time. Her parents had just divorced. But I led her to the Lord. Because in the middle of all that, God called me back. Just like a light switch went off. He just said, okay, Etienne, it's time to come back. And man, I came right back. Uh, Talk about that. It was interesting. I was sitting in my car. I was driving home. And I felt it clear as day. I turned my radio to Christian music. Went to church that weekend dragged Megan with me. She was just my fiance at the time. She did not understand what I was talking about. She had not been she had so, she had so gone had, to a Catholic had, private school, but that was the extent of her religion. At any point while you were dating or while you were living together before you dragged her to the church that Sunday, did you talk about growing up and faith? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the goody two shoes guy. So she smoked and I didn't smoke. I wouldn't touch it. Everybody in their group kind of cigarettes drank yeah cigarettes. Which was actually interesting when she was getting back into cigars, it made it difficult for her to get into cigars mm. because of the old... It was years and years ago. She quit right after college, I think, actually. Maybe even in college. It's been years and years, and still it was kind of hanging over her head. She talks about it a little bit in hers, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I was always that goody-two-shoes guy. So everybody knew I was different. 
Everybody knew I had something different about me. And also, I still had paperwork I had to take care of for being a juvenile delinquent. I had all this paperwork to take care of. And I didn't have a car. So guess who I leaned on to go... Take you. Take me. My girlfriend slash fiance who doesn't... I didn't like lead with my broken childhood when I met a girl I was hoping would be a long-term relationship. You understand, right? Yeah. I didn't lead with this. So it starts to unfold as I say, hey, can I get a ride down to the courthouse? I have some paperwork I got to file, blah, blah, blah. And so one thing led to another and I had to start opening up and telling her more about that. You know, why can you not meet my family? Well, because I don't really have any family, you know? (laughs) Who are these foster parents you keep talking about? Well, God was gracious. Yeah. And she didn't ask all the questions up front that, like, a responsible young woman ought to ask. <laughs> Who am I dating? And they came out over time. As mm-hmm. our relationship developed, yeah. it grew the strength to withstand some of the things that I really laid on it. And mm-hmm. we suffered through sometimes. And, and when sheer you say, tenacity, and, I think, got and, us through. And when you say suffered through... It wasn't a healthy relationship. No, it wasn't. Early it was on. emotionally destructive. She was depressed. And I wasn't walking with the Lord until he called me back. And even then, I snapped back. It wasn't like I did anything halfway. I was an all or nothing kind of guy. So... But you still are. Yeah, I still am. <laughs> it's true. I say, you know, if you're going to make a decision, make it well. Decide what's the right course of action to do. And then do it. Do it with all your strength. Do it with all your heart. With all your mind. So if you're going to love God, if God says, love me, and you make that decision to love him, man, you better give it everything you got. And so even when I wasn't walking with God, when I said, hey, I'm going to go figure out who I am, I plunged into that with everything I had. I said, this is the right thing to do, not really for moral reasons, but just this is something I've got to do. So I plunged into it with everything I had. So yeah, I think that's a good quality to have, honestly. I think you ought to. If you're going to do something, don't do it halfway. Yeah. So you finish school. Decide carefully. So you finish school. Mm-hmm. And then you guys... So she'd become a Christian. Okay. And so we decided that her family weren't Christians, and so if we were going to go somewhere, we might as well go to her family because they needed to know the gospel too. So we moved to Las Vegas. Which is where they were. Which is where they had all moved to, her mom's side of the family anyway. She had her grandmother, several uncles, and her mom's new husband. They all lived out there. And Vegas was an up-and-coming time. So this was like 2004. Yeah. Three, four, somewhere in there. We moved there. And so up through 2008, we were there till the big real estate crash. And that was an interesting time. God really unpacked some major things for me there. So I'll just touch on the high points from that area. There's probably two big areas. First one is when we got there, we got plugged into this great small group of people. We went to this like marriage gathering at the church and we just said, hey, we don't know anybody. So let's meet some people. Young Marrieds, probably a good place to go meet some people in our stage of life. Let's do that. By random chance, we had this great couple sit down at our table. They were part of this meal group. The group was led by the children's pastor at the church. Mm -hmm. And so they said, come on over. You can join our group. And so we did. Became fast friends. And that children's pastor said, hey, I'm looking for a worship leader. And I said, man, it's been on my heart to be a worship leader. Like really on my heart. Like, I learned how to play guitar just so that I could be a worship leader. 
And I had applied to be a worship leader at the church, but the church was, oh my gosh, they had a thousand volunteers. I think they had a thousand people apply just for the one open position. And this is Vegas. So you have Christians who are performing down on the strip and are yeah. excellent musicians. Yeah. And so they've got their pick. And they just had a wonderful music team, a wonderful music team. And I was not that caliber. <laughs> so I crashed and burned. And so that was kind of disappointing because that had been something I really wanted to do. And so this children's pastor said, yeah, I'd love for you to join my team and help me out with that. And then I said, something came up in my heart and in my mind and said, yeah, but I'm a juvenile wreck with a record. Uh, is that going to be okay? I got to be honest with this guy. So I told him at his house, I sat down on his bed in his bedroom because we separated from everybody else. And I just said, I got to tell you a story. Before you allow me to be your worship leader, I got to tell you about my life. Yeah. So I told him, and I told him that, you know, I'd gotten it all resolved, and I'd turned over this new leaf, and the Lord was working on me, and I was married, and everything. And so he said, all right, well, I'm going to go to my pastor, who's in charge of me, and ask him what he thinks. Yeah. And at the time, he had this great guy who was the family ministries pastor, who looked him in the eye and said, well, what do you think God wants you to do? I'll let you make that call. Yeah. You're the one who has to work with him. It sounds like he's dealt with all this stuff from his past. You decide. And so my friend Kurt, he decided. And he said, yeah, come on, join me. Like a couple months later, that family ministries pastor moved to a different church and a new guy came in. And Kurt didn't even think to update him. Like he had already gotten the approval, so it didn't matter. And so I was just a volunteer and just a guy. And it was just him and me, the only ones who really kind of knew that I had this dark past in my childhood. And I served as faithfully and as hard as I possibly could. We did some cool, cool stuff. Hmm. Built some great relationships with those kids. I worked hard volunteered all the time and that led me to this point where I sat down with God and I said Lord look I'm working as this like bit accountant right in the back office of these you know during the week and I hate it it's blisteringly boring mm -hmm. and uh, then on the weekends I'm out serving you leading these kids to the Lord worshiping with them shouldn't I just quit all this work stuff and go into ministry full time and God said clear as day to me no. And man, I wrestled with that. I wrestled with that and I had a long conversation with him. It must have taken me a year to have this conversation with him. What? What do you mean no? What does this mean? And God said, look, there are a lot of places that I can send a missionary to. I can teach him the language and I can give him the funds and I can put him on an airplane and I can send him almost anywhere in the world. There's one place I'm having a really hard time sending a missionary to. And that is upper middle class entrepreneurial America the business class. All these people are good enough and they're hardworking and they have enough money, but they just don't need a savior. They really don't. They donate. They go into church on the weekends. They're kind of mailing it in. They're not really living the life that I've mm -hmm. called them to. And I need you to go there with those skills. I need you to be that missionary. So of course I said, all right, once I'd finally come to the understanding that that's what God wanted me to do, I didn't do anything halfway. So I said, all right, I'm going to be the best damn business person that I could possibly be then, obviously, because that's where God needs me. Yeah. So we wrapped up our time in Vegas. Before yeah. you wrap up your time in Vegas, I guarantee you right now, there's someone that's listening right now and they heard you say, God spoke to me. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what does that mean? Because yeah. it means different things for different people. But yeah. what does that mean for you? How does God speak to you? Well, God has spoken to me in a lot of ways over my walk with him. Sometimes I'm having a conversation with him and it just hits you. 
It's like you're having an internal dialogue. Yeah. And the way that I know that it's God is, first of all, it's that pure voice. You learn to recognize the voice. You can hear the tone in your head, in your heart. And honestly, it's the kind of voice that comes faster than thought. It's the best way I can describe it. I'm having a conversation with God, and I can't even formulate my arguments against him, and he's already answered me. I'm like, well, God, but what about, and I've got the answer in my head. Okay, all right. But what about, and then boom, he's answered me again. And Okay, Lord, those are the times when he really wants me to do something. He's having an active conversation with me. It's not one of those, hey, go search it out in the scriptures. I've already written the answer down. Go find it. I've already written it down. Just go and study the scriptures and you'll come to the same conclusion that I want you to come to. And I want you to go through that process because it's healthy for you. And then sometimes you sit down with a brother and a brother hears some of your story and he gives you some advice and you sit down with a sister or another brother or somebody else and they give you other advice and you kind of blend it all together and you go, okay, I've got a direction I can go in. That's another way that God will speak to you as well too. But occasionally... And at defined moments in my walk with God, there have been these active conversations with him where I'm sitting there and I'm praying. I'm talking directly to God. I'm saying, look, Lord, I'm knocking on your door. You and I need to talk. I have a question and I really want an answer because this matters to me and I think it matters to you. Can you help me out with this? And the conversation is active and powerful and fast and decisive. And it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for wishy-washiness or questioning it's just an active conversation with the God of the universe. It's hard to put it in a different context than that. Those who have spent good time and quiet time and read their Bibles and spent healthy time in prayer will absolutely recognize that voice. It's hard to miss. And that's the kind of conversation I had in that moment with him. Mm. All right. So you wrap up your time in Vegas. Mm-hmm. That's when you guys came out here, right? Yep. We had our first son in Vegas, but we didn't really want to raise a family there because it's Vegas. Although there's been lots of good families raised in Vegas, but we just didn't want to. We couldn't stand the billboards everywhere. And also, we'd done our ministry to Megan's family and baptized her grandmother and baptized her uncle. And her mom told us, I'll come to church with you on one condition, that you never ask me ever again. So we came out of that church service and she said, all right, our promise holds. I said, hey, I think our time's done. (laughs) And then 2008 hit, and so my business, I was working in a construction company as their accountant in, you know, corporate accountant, and it just folded. The company folded. Everything was a disaster. Everything in the construction industry in Vegas imploded. And so I said, hey, look, I've kind of done the whole bouncing. You know, you come out of college, you get a job, you find a better job, you find a better job, and I'd done that. This was the third time I'd done it. And so I said, if I'm going to jump again to another job, I'd really like to stay there for a while. I don't want to keep bouncing around all the time. But, you know, when you're coming out of school, you learn Mm -hmm. something and you move on. Mm -hmm. So I said, either we're committing to Vegas for the next five years or the sky's the limit. Let's go wherever we want to go. Why don't we just look anywhere in the country? I mean, we've already been to your family. We've done what we can for them. And I don't really have any family, so we could live anywhere. And Colorado Springs was one of the towns on our list just because it was the right size and shape and style that we liked. And at the time, there was some good tech stuff here, and you know that appealed to my tech background. And then we had a couple from our small group. We were, at that point, leading a small group at our church in Vegas. And they said to us, hey, he was a pilot. He's like, I have an opportunity. I get stationed either in, I think it was Utah, Salt Lake City, or Colorado Springs. And we said, well, gee, if you go to Colorado Springs, we'll move there with you. And so we helped him move. And we were driving the U-Haul out, and I just looked up online and found a headhunter and said, hey, will you pass my resume around and see if I can get an interview while I'm here? I'm only here for like two days. 
Got an interview at an accounting firm. It was the only job that would have appealed to me. It was doing mergers and acquisitions, helping mm. people buy and sell companies mm. at an accounting firm. And it hit everything that I needed. And it was probably the only job in town that would have done that. And so... Which was I, difficult to get a job here mm-hmm. in 2008, yep. 2009 January 2008. It was just beginning to hit the skids. But they had just come off a banner year of M&A work. Mm. So in their mind, they're gearing up. Turns out it was the subsequent two years were the worst two years of M&A in American history. Mm. <laughs> so that's bad. So I went from one failing industry to another failing industry. But I landed that job on that one interview, and we were out here less than a month later. Mm. And we did the same thing when we moved here. Found a church, tried getting connected with people, did a pretty good job of building connections and getting into the whole small... We just knew that small groups of people were a good way to build relationships. So, yeah, so we did that. So that, and that's what I learned from Vegas. I guess the best way to do this and not make it hours long is to kind of fast forward a little bit and kind of compress the next few years. The next few years were a struggle because here I am, a young man, about four or five years into a marriage, no father. I still had my foster dad. He lived in Oregon still. They had retired from foster care at that point, and I could have called him a lot more, and that's one of the big regrets in my entire life is that I did not call him and make relationship with him more after I left his home. Mm -hmm. I still have a good relationship with him. But I never leaned on him like I would have leaned on a dad because I just didn't know how. Mm. Because I'd been tossed around so many places, I'm a kind of guy that if you're not here with me and I can't spend time with you, I just don't build good relationships long distance because I feel the distance. Mm. So that's hard and it's my biggest regret because I think he could have helped me a lot. He's a really good man and I didn't take advantage of everything that he could have offered. But that left me in a place where I felt alone. And here I am, I'm having kids, I now have four boys, and I still don't have any mentors, still don't have any father figure. I left the accounting firm and started my own accounting firm, focusing on early stage startups. Did some really, really cool stuff, got involved in almost every startup in Colorado Springs, just got to network, got to meet all the really good movers and shakers, and just got to be involved in some of the coolest conversations and meetings and just some fun stuff, really fun stuff. Really caught the vision to help Colorado Springs develop its startup culture. And I got blessed to be one of the instrumental guys to originally do that. There's a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice. I did not make any money from it, but... Pitch Nights. Pitch Night was one of the things we founded. It's still going strong today, yeah. even though I'm not involved with it anymore. That's, that's a win, in my opinion. I like building community passing it on to the next generation and watching it survive anyway and grow even yeah even better than I could have taken it that's where you know you've done something right yeah in my opinion I don't need all the credit I just want to see something really cool get done so it was at that point then you came to family talk yeah right mm-hmm so I was doing this outsourced CFO role basically for all these startups and at the time family talk was kind of a startup it was running startup mode I mean it had a lot of people and it had a good reputation because of Dobson yeah but that's where Craig found me and that's really the kind of the role he needed. He just needed a part-time pseudo-CFO role. I don't think I ever really had the title of CFO, but I kind of fulfilled that role mm-hmm. there a little bit, just assisting him with the kinds of things yeah. a CFO would have assisted with. But he really carried the uh, most of the weight of the responsibility there. But it was really cool. And that, I got to meet Doctor, I got to meet you, I got to meet Ryan, I got to meet all the cool guys. 
just a bunch of really cool people. You know, that was a whole sub-circle of Colorado Springs that I had, I'm just an outsider, right? I had moved yeah. to town. I was probably five years in at that point. And you guys had been doing this work for eons here. Yeah. And there's all this history and all this stuff and all this struggle. And I kind of just step into the midst of it all. So that's some precious time for me. I really got to meet some cool people and learn some cool things. Yeah. I also learned that I don't want to work for a nonprofit ever. <laughs> I'm just cut like a for-profit guy. And God had really like nailed that into me. And so if there's a nonprofit that wanted for-profit type advice, where you really solve challenges using the tools you have available to you, rather than immediately looking for more donations, trying to make yourself more efficient, really holding yourself accountable to metrics, things like that, then yeah, I was your guy. But if you're an old school nonprofit and you just want to appease the board and keep things going the way they've been going until all your donors die from old age, then that was not something I was interested in. So I actually tried to turn that experience into some more nonprofit work and it just never really worked out. I could just see that it wasn't gonna yeah. it wasn't gonna work. But Family Talk, Family Talk was cool. Yeah. We did some cool stuff there. All right. You leave there and you go to an organization in town that's making furnaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was cool because it kind of connected everything together. So I worked for this company. I was actually their CFO there. It was called the Paradigm Project. And I'm not entirely proud of all the work I did there because I didn't do as good of a job as I think I should have. I made some mistakes there. I was still trying to figure it out. I'm a young kid. Mm -hmm. Still trying to figure it all out. But it was great work. Good idea. The idea behind it was that it was a for-profit business that had taken investor money and was attempting to build distribution channels for efficient burning cook stoves, solar lights, and water filters in some of the hardest to reach places in the world. Yep. We're talking Kenya, Rwanda, Ethiopia. I learned how to ship stuff from China to Ethiopia. Just some of the things that you would never learn as a you know young guy in Colorado Springs. So I really got a great education there, but made a couple of mistakes. There were some other problems there at the company, and then the industry didn't back us up. The original business model was heavily based on carbon credits, which at the time were trading very high and providing a great income stream. So as we put more cook stoves into service, they would produce these carbon credits because they you know, stopped the emission of particulate matter into the atmosphere and also reduced the number of trees people needed to cut down and a bunch of other things. And so a phenomenal business plan, but the price of a carbon credit went from like $10 a credit down to 50 cents a credit Ooh. in a very short period of time. And we had to completely remaster our business model. And I think ultimately that and some other key things really hammered that startup into the ground. Yeah. So as far as startup work goes, my list of successes is much shorter than my list of failures. But they say that success comes from experience, experience comes from failure. True. That hard times make good men, good men make good times. Good times make bad men, bad men make hard times, hard times make good men. And it's the cycle that we go through. So I got lucky, I went through the, I, I was never really a bad man, but I went through hard times and it made mm -hmm. me a good man, I think, which has allowed me to create some good times for other people. Yeah. So from the tail end of that, of course, I got into some other cool organizations, did some CFO work for them. Save the Storks is one of the organizations. It's a pro-life ministry here in town. I did that. It helped them for a couple of months. They're a great organization. But at the same time, I got the opportunity to purchase Locals Barbershop and Salon. 
And this was the full culmination of everything that God had taken me through. As an advisor to people and as part of these startup teams, yeah. the weight of responsibility never really got to rest on my shoulders completely. And so I had all these ideas and I really wanted to be tested. I've heard you describe it in such a way that you would give advice mm -hmm. to these startups and they wouldn't listen to you. Mm -hmm. And eventually it just got so frustrating that, all right, I'm giving this great advice. I might as well try and live it. And you also had a conversation with God mm -hmm. during that mm -hmm. season mm -hmm. when locals, I think even before locals mm -hmm. became that an year. option. That year. Where, talk about that one. Okay. Yeah, so you've teed it up perfectly. You don't have to take my advice, right? And sometimes it's, you shouldn't take everybody's advice. And sometimes my advice probably wasn't the greatest advice. But I thought it was good. And the frustration that comes from constantly advising people is you either have to disconnect yourself and just bill them and say, whether you take my advice or not, you got to yeah. just pay the price for it and then we'll move on. I wasn't that guy. I was too personally involved in all the projects I ever Because you're with. all in. Yeah, because I'm all in. And so I took it personally mm -hmm. when they wouldn't succeed. And that became very difficult. That's the wrong attitude to have if you're going to be an outside advisor. So I sat down with God after all this was done, after Paradigm Projects was done, and after the next business I was on was done. I sat down with God, and I'd gotten paid enough. I'd kind of amassed enough money to sort of figure out what I was going to do next. And I didn't have to, like, find a job now. Yeah. I had a few months I could burn. Probably wasn't the wisest thing to do, but I think I used it wisely. I sat down with God and I said, okay, Lord, I feel like the next thing that I'm doing has to be a big one. It's going to be something that I can really commit myself to. It's going to push me in an area that I'm not great at, being a real leader. And I don't know what that is, God. I've now done so many different things. I've dabbled a little bit in nonprofits. I've helped you know, a, several dozen different types of businesses either launch or sell. I did a little work in medical devices. I've done some international work, you know. What in the heck? Just show me where you want me to go, God, mm -hmm. and I'll go. This was another time we had one of those conversations. He fired back and said, no, what do you want to do? And I said, well, wait, Lord, am, am I allowed to answer that question? Like, isn't this supposed to be your will and I just sort of follow along everywhere that you lead? And he said, kind of, but not really. He said, I've put some desires in your heart. I've given you a good education taking you around the world. I've shown you all these different businesses. What do you think the world needs and what can you do about it? Mm. And I thought, well, that's a fair question. Thanks for putting the responsibility back on me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I began this process of self-discovery and I really nailed down on the question of what do I really think the world needs and what can I actually do about it? Like really actually. Not pie in the sky, what do I wish if I had a billion dollars, blah, blah. I don't have a billion dollars. So that is a constraint on what I can physically do today. What can I start doing about it? Given what I've got, you know, imagine that you're the disciples. you got the 5,000 out there waiting to be fed. And Jesus looks at them and says, you feed them. <laughs> and, yeah. and they go, well, well, how are we supposed to do that? That's kind of the situation I was in. Yeah. So I ended up with five things that I needed in my next gig. The first one was that I needed to be the final leader because of all the things we just talked about. I needed the weight of the responsibility of the final leadership. The buck needed to stop with me, partly just because I needed to test myself in that area, but also because I thought I could do it. The second thing is I needed a team around me. When I'd done my little accounting firm, I'd had one other guy working with me, and other than that, it was just me and my own head. And there was two problems with that. A, there was nobody to share my dreams with, and B, there was nobody to really motivate me to keep working hard. When you have to make payroll every two weeks, mm -hmm. I tell you, you work twice as hard as you would work if you only have to make your own payroll. Yeah. Because I can live on a little. 
but I can't force somebody else to live on a little as well. So I needed a team around me. That was the second thing. The third thing is the sky needed to be the limit. I could not live in something that I couldn't fully commit myself to. So the ideas like franchises were out, you know, where they're geographically limited. Now, and some people might say, well, you could always buy a second franchise. Well, okay, you can. But for me, anything that was artificially capped, you can go this far and no further. You know, a little cafe on a corner, unless I was planning on making a chain of cafes. Those weren't going to meet my needs. So that was my third thing. The sky needed to be the limit. If I was going to commit the best years of my life to something, then it needed to be worth committing to. The fourth thing is it needed to be international. I'd already been international. I'd already seen the opportunity in the world and the thousands, the millions, the billions of hurting people out there and how easy it is to make a difference. And I wanted that for two reasons. A, I wanted to continue to make that difference. And B, I wanted my boys to have a reason to go that wasn't just missionary tourism, as Mm. I call it. Where you take the fancy picture, the selfie with you and all the little orphans in the background. I hate those pictures. No offense to anybody who's taken those pictures. But I hate them. Because I would rather go and actually do some business there and actually be behind the scenes and get some real stuff done. I'm not there to take pictures and collect names and see how some projects are being done. I'm there to actually create projects and actually do stuff. And in the process, I've also met the most beautiful people you've ever seen. And I've had the most precious worship time with people in a dozen different languages. And it's just amazing. So all of that comes with it, right? And you know you're there for the right reasons. So it was important for me. So the fourth thing was I needed to go international. And I want to be able to take my boys out there too. The fifth thing is every single day when I get up, I am never going to go back to that place where I was at in Vegas. Where... I'm doing work I hate during the week and then doing what I called, quote, God's work on the weekends. I couldn't bifurcate my life that way any longer ever again. It needed to be integrated. It needed to be fully integrated. Every single day I get up and I do God's work. So those are my five things. Boom, almost to the second when I had sort of figured those things out and settled on what they were and I can articulate them now the way we just did in just a couple minutes. An old client of mine, who was a friend of mine, called me and said, hey, i got to sell Locals Barbershop. And how long did it take you to get those distilled down, Man, those five points? Man, it must have taken me almost six months. Really? Yeah, it was a long time. Wow. And there was a lot of yelling at God in the process, and a lot of tears, and a lot of face down on the, on the floor, praying about my own inadequacies, and how good God is, and how wonderful and amazing He is, but why have you locked me into this season of uncertainty and this desert I'm walking through. There was a lot of despair and then just picking everything up and saying, nevertheless, Lord, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to push through. Mm. And it was a difficult time. I mean, I lived on nothing, just my bank account. And I have four boys and a wife and everybody's getting dragged along with me. So What was Megan going through during that time? She did not understand. She did not know. She was... Thank the Lord she was patient with me. There were a lot of times when she questioned and she didn't know, and that put tension on us. Yeah. But, I mean, the proof of the pudding's in the eating, and she's still with me, so <laughs> she was patient through it all, and that was good. That's what we needed. I just needed to figure it out. And I remember, I mean, long days of just wrestling with God, just talking it out with Him, and chasing down ideas, trying to buy this business, trying to buy that business, exploring this idea, exploring that idea, applying for this job, applying for that job, and nothing really fitting. So it was not a period of inactivity by any means. It was all very active. 
And it wasn't like the quiet monk on a mountaintop either. I mean, I was wrestling through it in the fires of life still goes on. Yeah. So you get this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Locals barbershop, mm-hmm. a client, the business is failing. Yep. So I asked him, you know, why are you selling it? And he's like, well, it's just it's not doing what I needed to do. It was right on the verge of being kicked out by the landlord. And so I investigated it. But to really talk about how I bought Locals Barbershop would be to jump ahead of the story, I think. Because Holy Smoke stepped in before this. All right. So let's go back then. What was it? Around 2013, 2014? Mm-hmm. 2013. I'm in 2013. So I'd gone through this period of not having mentors, not having father figures, looking for mentors. Like actively looking for mentors. There are still men in town here who I like called regularly and said, hey, can we go to lunch, please? I need a mentor. And they were busy guys and they had their own lives. And so, you know, they did as much as they could, but they weren't really either. They weren't in a place where they wanted to be a mentor or I wasn't the right guy or I don't know what, but it never really stuck. So here I was still kind of on my own. And I remember I met Paul Felitas at the Emerge Business Summit. That's where I met him. He was running the bookstore at the Emerge Business Summit. And I had been to the Emerge Business Summit since the very beginning. In fact, because of my whole connection with business and mission, when Josh and Nick Schreifels, Josh Imhoff and Nick Schreifels, when they just had their coffee thing to originally lay the idea out that there was this whole idea of the seven mountains and that they were going to go after the business sphere and that they thought this connected to God's call for the kingdom and all this stuff, like I was there. I was there from the beginning. Yeah. Because as soon as I heard about it, I said, this is where I have to go. These are the kinds of people that I need to hang out with. Kind of tribe you wanted. Yeah. So I remember going up afterwards and just saying, hey, whenever you guys are doing another thing like this, please include me. And that was pretty early on. And so I just always stayed connected with their stuff, always went to their business summits, loved going there, loved meeting the people there. Everybody was speaking the right language, and I just knew that this is what I wanted to do. So when I was doing the Paradigm Project thing, I spoke there a couple of times and just really developed a pretty good relationship with those guys through that event. Yeah. But the rest of the year, you know, you're kind of on your own. So I met Paul there, and I can't remember whether he invited me then or whether he invited me a little bit later, but I think he kind of hinted about it because I, you know, I sat down with him, ate a meal with him, and just said, hey, what do you do? And he kind of hinted around that kind of stuff, and Holy Smokes was only a year old at that point, I think. And The regular meetings. The regular meetings, yeah, which were at his house. And so I got invited there from that, and Josh had been in my small group. I had been leading a small group. And so when I told him about what Paul had said, Josh was like, oh yeah, I've been going to that too. You should come. Like, definitely. And so then I started. I showed up one day. I didn't even smoke cigars. I didn't even smoke pot. I smoked nothing. I barely drank. I drank scotch at the time. And that was really it. But when I saw the men that were there at that gathering, I knew I had found the people I was looking for. And I was by far the youngest guy there, except for when Josh showed up. And then he and I are about the same age. But most of the time, I was by far the youngest guy there. We're talking decades. And I took every minute possible to be with those guys. I would show up at 4.30 or earlier, and I would stay until I was the last one there. And I would help clean up, and I would do whatever it took just to continue to spend time with Paul and Steve and Max and there are so many other guys. I could list all the names. They're all on the Facebook. You know, all these yeah. guys who'd been around for the whole time. Don Aker. Like, just all these guys. 
and just loved building a relationship with them. And the relationship really started to blossom when we went up to the Rocky Mountain Cigar Festival together. All of the wives came and everybody showed up and it was a whole three-day event. And then my wife got to meet everybody. And then we actually got to spend time with one another. You know, it wasn't just an event on a Wednesday night for a couple of hours. It was a few days together. And it's a few days together. And that really deepened everything. Because not everybody shows up there, you know. Yeah. It takes a certain commitment. And it's not like I had a lot of money. But I spent it on that because I knew that this was important. So that was where really where the relationship started to blossom. And then I started, people would ask me, hey, how's it going? Nick, Nick Schreifels did this a lot, actually. He would say, hey, how's it going? And I would say, well, I'm still struggling through this whole walk with God. We're talking 2014 yeah. now. I think God's kind of telling me this, that, and the other thing. I'm trying to apply for this position, trying to apply for that position. And then finally, the opportunity for locals came up, right? And Nick would stop the whole meeting and just ask everybody to pray for him. Wow. And Paul would do the same thing and just stop everything and just say, hey, let's pray for our brother ATN who's... You know, got this opportunity, and that was precious. That was amazing. That was powerful. So I felt like I had an absolute army of men behind me who were in my corner, who I could rely on, and when I was having a bad day, I could just tell them about it. And when I needed advice, I could ask them for it. And these guys are giants of the faith and have done so many cool things, and so they had a depth of wisdom and experience to draw from that I just didn't even have any comprehension of. And I soaked it all up. So when it came to actually buying locals, of course, by this point, I didn't have enough money to really consummate the deal. So I turned to the only guys I knew. I called Holy Smokes and I asked him, hey, you know, I need to buy this business. Do you guys want to join in it with me? And some of them said no. They just said, no, I'm not really interested in that kind of a business, but call so-and-so. And some of the guys at Holy Smokes, they said, yeah, sure. Sit down and show me what you got. And I give the presentation to some of them. Some of them, you didn't even have to show the presentation. They just and cut you a check. Them, exactly. Because they knew you. I remember you saying. That's right. I know you. I know who you are. I believe in you. I've seen you. I've watched you. Mm-hmm. I believe in you. Here's a check. And that is exactly what I needed at that time. That was the most How healing thing. was that for you? Oh, my gosh. It was way more than the money. It was a vote of confidence from men. It was an absolute rebirthing into the community of men. When somebody is willing to put their money, their livelihood into your hands and trust you with it, and at the same time say, I know who you are, and I like you, and I trust you, you can do this. I get chills just thinking about it. Yeah. The power that is transferred from a man to a young man in that moment is absolutely incalculable. I would have fallen on a sword to protect those men, to do what was right. I would have moved heaven and earth. And in some cases I had to in order to rebirth this business. That was absolute power and it was absolutely the wind in my sails that I needed to make it work. More now, than anything else. locals, I've seen how you have turned that place around. Mm -hmm. It is a vibrant mm -hmm. little shop mm -hmm. that has grown you actually took a spot next to you so you could grow, mm -hmm. make it bigger. Mm -hmm. You're making an impact on those people's lives. I know. It's incredible. It's much more difficult work than I expected it to be. And I'm being stretched as a leader a lot further than I thought I would be stretched. And many times I've almost fallen. 
But yeah, you're right. We started at $30,000 a month and we topped out at about $75,000 a month. We've doubled in size. We've won awards every year. Absolutely kept it going. And there's a long list of people now whose entire families depend on the revenue that they make at locals. And so now I don't just have my own livelihood in my hands. I have almost 30 people's families. And God has grown it slowly. That small team, remember I needed a small team? Mm -hmm. Grew that small team. And as I had capacity and as I learned the lessons that I needed to learn as a leader, he gave me more and more. So now we've got a system that works pretty well and I don't have to be there on a daily basis anymore. We've got a team that mostly runs it for us. And it is absolutely provided for my family since day one. And I couldn't do it without all the good people that work with me and without all the people at Holy Smokes taking a chance on me. Couldn't have done it. Now you have a new opportunity that you are pursuing since you don't need to be there every day. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. Because we talked about a little bit on the Couple That Smokes Together episode. Mm -hmm. But the rubber's hitting the road pretty soon. Yeah, it has. It has hit the road. All right, so here's what we're doing with Holy Smokes. So in Colorado Springs, it gets cold half the year. When it's nice and warm outside, which is a lot of the year, honestly, we hang out at Paul's place or we hang out at my house. Megan and I host every other week and Paul and Mary host the other weeks. And that's nice. But when it's cold, it's bitter. It's cold. And you're not outside smoking. And so in order to get all of us together, there's really only one place in town that we can go. And that's the cigar bar that's been downtown for the last 15 years. And so we have been going there for, gee, six or eight years, something like that, regularly, every Wednesday, all winter long. And it was about two years ago that Paul and Mary and Megan and I were just sitting out on a, not a Wednesday night, but like a Friday night or something. And we were there at the cigar bar and Paul said, hey, did you know that they've tried to sell this place a couple of times? You know, we really ought to look into buying this place because we come here often enough and we need this place enough, and we really need a hub that we can call uh, Holy Smoke Central. You know, this has grown into a big deal, right? We have 30 to 50 guys showing up weekly now. This is a big deal. We need to secure this place. Did you know that they tried to sell it? I said, wow, really? Yeah, I imagine they probably tried to sell it. And they said, you should try to buy it. I said, well... I learned my lesson a long time ago when I was doing all those startups that if you separate your mind too many different directions and you just chase after things because they seem like a good idea, that you'll pretty quickly burn yourself out and burn up all your resources too. You really ought to focus on just those things that God calls you to do. So I let it lie. And probably a year later, we're sitting there again. And this time Mary says, you guys really need to acquire this place. And that got my attention because Mary's on the fringe. She's not a regular holy smoker. Paul and I have a dog in the fight. You know, we would love to have the place. Great. Yeah, it's like our own private smoking lounge. Excellent. That seems like an awesome idea. Like, what could go wrong with that? But when somebody outside of the deal says, no, 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 there's value here. Yeah. And I said, all right, well, you know, would you guys be willing to be involved? And they're like, yeah. We would financially invest in this. At that point, I said, okay, let's talk to the other Holy Smokes guys and see if somebody else would financially invest in And a handful of them said, yes, we would invest in this. Go and see if you can put a deal together. So I called the owners and I sat down with them and told them what we were thinking and, you know, showed them our experience and all that stuff. And they knew us, but not in that capacity. They just knew us as the Holy Smokes group that came and made their Wednesday night what it is. Yeah. But they showed me their books and records. They told us what they were expecting out of it. We built relationships with the bartenders 
and got to know that they're pretty good people and really started to pay attention to the way that they ran their business and the ebbs and flows of it with the mind that we were vetting it out to see if this was a good deal. So then I put all my mergers and acquisitions skills to play, <laughs> built a financial model based yeah. on what I knew of it and began doing my research. And what we discovered was, first of all, you can't start another cigar bar anywhere in the state of Colorado because of the Indoor Clean Air Act. Our government in the state of Colorado has banned indoor smoking of any kind. And that includes vaping and marijuana. And so if you want to own one, if you want to invest in this area, you must acquire one that has maintained its grandfathering since the act was passed. What year was that? So that would have been 2006. Okay. 2006 is when it was passed. So that's when Rendezvous was started almost a year earlier than that and just has maintained their cigar smoking exemption. The problem with that cigar bar, though, is that it's not really set up as a cigar bar. It's really more of a bar that just allows smoking. Yeah. And so for us, we use it, and we think it's great, but we know that it could be so much more. Right, that iconic cigar bar that you know and love, that you can immediately bring to your mind, right, is a comfortable lounge, it's got a certain style to it, the cigars are all prominently displayed, it's got a certain liquor selection, there's a certain presentation of the cigar to the customer. Yeah. Typically, it's all throwback to Prohibition era days, stuff like that, right? Well, our cigar bar is not like that at all. And so, for me, having come off of Locals and this whole turnaround project that I had just done, all of those are opportunities, mm-hmm. not failings. What they are is there are ways that we can modify the business as it stands today, change it in order to become the kind of thing that we all needed it to be. And so those became opportunities. And so as I baked them into my financial model and said, okay, if we make that kind of change, it might improve the revenue this way. And if we make that kind of change, it might improve the revenue that way. Really, it became a very, very profitable financial model. In fact, I had to start <laughs> dialing it back. Because at some certain point, it got ridiculous. And I said, wow, like, you know, I had to call other cigar bar owners and say, is this possible? And they all said, absolutely. That's what we do every year. And I said, oh, okay. Well, you know, let's slow the growth down. Let's take a little longer to do all these kinds of things until it came down to a reasonable sort of rate of return for the investors. Reasonable still being ridiculously good, but not outlandish. Yeah. You know, I don't want to set expectations for people that couldn't be met. I wanted this to succeed, right? This is a precious group to me. Yeah. So this is some area that's so precious to me that I'm not willing to violate it at all. What I promise to deliver, I will definitely deliver because all these people are my friends. I wouldn't violate that. So I had to dial it back and say, okay, what's realistic? And it still is a good business model. So we said, okay, let's pull the trigger on this. So I put together a full package put together a full presentation, started airing it out to people tail end of last year. And we needed to raise some money and we got some people committed and we're still in that process. So we are right in the fires of it now. The vision for the place is really the most exciting thing about it. The vision is to be kind of that light in the center of Colorado Springs. Everything that has been so precious about Holy Smokes, we will embed, enshrine in an actual location now. Everything that's been working sort of behind the scenes, invite-only sort of club, you hear about it from a friend, from a friend, and they invite you, and it's in somebody's backyard. Now we're going to have a place where that happens every single day. All those connections, all those conversations, all that intentionality, everything that I've learned as being a host of Holy Smokes for years now is going to flow into this place. 
the look and feel of the place itself is going to lend itself to all that. The environment, the lighting, the music, the art on the walls, everything about it, the presentation of the cigars. But more than that, the activities and the events, the way that we train the bartenders to build relationship with people, to ask them those deeper questions, the way that we will know our customers, the way we'll use technology and clubs or things like that to help us remember what kind of cigars you liked, what kind of drink you liked, to remember key aspects about you. Where do you work? What's your family like? So that we can bring those back into conversation so you don't feel like you're just visiting a bar and having a cigar and buying a drink, but you're actually entering again into a relationship. Into a club. Into a club, into a brotherhood. Yeah. You know, or a sisterhood. Yeah. My wife's a certified bourbon steward, and the reason she likes bourbon is not just because it's an alcoholic drink with all this history, it's because it's meant to be shared. It's meant to draw people into relationship with one another. It's not something you chug in the corner. That's what you do with cheap vodka, right? What you do with bourbon, with fine bourbon and with a good cigar, is you share it with someone. You and I are sharing a cigar right now and having a wonderful conversation here. We're getting to learn about each other's lives. And those are the things that have drawn me into Holy Smokes. The reason I picked up cigars, the reason I picked up bourbon as well as I have is only to deepen the chance that I'll enter into these relationships on a more regular basis. So that's what we'll be doing every single day. And we're in the midst of putting it together now. And you are actively soliciting partners yep. on this. You are We'd almost halfway there to your target goal. Yep. We'd like Holy Smokes to really take the lead on it, to really partner with us, to make it their own. I've gone a little bit outside of Holy Smokes, just as there are connections to Holy Smokes. But mostly I would like to, and you know, the reason I'm having all my conversations with guys in Holy Smokes is because they already catch the vision. They already know what this thing is all about and what it should be. And for them to be able to participate and benefit from being involved with it, you know, on an operational sense, but just really on a spiritual sense, on a relationship sense, that's the best of all the possibilities. So we're going to the Holy Smokes group and we're just saying, hey, if you're interested in finding out more, call me. I can't give a blast about all the details, but one-on-one, I you can, can certainly yeah, give talk all the about details. That. Talk about those details when someone reaches out to you. How does someone get a hold of you to find out more about this? Yeah, so email is a great way to do it. Phone number is a secondary way to do it. My email address is E-T-I-E-N-N-E at localscut.com or e-h-a-r-d-r-e at gmail.com and phone number is 719-351-4888 text works fine but just tell me you're interested in this kind of stuff and then we can go from there it's Ian Hardray I want to see this happen because I've seen you light up at Rendezvous Mm -hmm. just talking about okay over here I'm thinking about this over here I'm thinking about this and having a little section of the place where I can set up for the podcast Mm -hmm. and eventually set up with cameras and get some video conversations recorded as well. Mm -hmm. Holy smokers. I want to see this happen. So clock is ticking. You want to have the finances in place in the end of the spring. Yeah. Well, really by now. So the conversations that we need to have now are with people who really want to move forward. The clock is ticking for a number of reasons. First of all, the more we talk about it, the more other people find out about it. And there's always a possibility that somebody else will step in. And and it happened. 
there was another cigar bar in Colorado Springs. It's called 15C, and it sold to another restaurateur. I think it was at the end of 2018, and he reopened it as a bar in 2019, a bar that does not allow smoking. And so from the year 2019, they lost their grandfathering. And then they can never have, until the law changes, they can never have smoking indoors there again, ever. That's happened once. That halved the number of cigar bars in Colorado Springs. There is always potential that could happen again if we don't move now. So for me, the time is short just because there's always that potential. Colorado Springs downtown is growing like mad like it's on fire they're building new hotels on almost every corner they're building a new stadium downtown they're building apartments everywhere there's new businesses going in everywhere it's one of the hottest markets in the country and so the potential for somebody to snag something that is so prime placed is so high that that's constantly a concern for me is to speak carefully about it to find the right people and to move quickly so we are moving as quickly as we can to make it happen and I'm moving quickly in getting this in the podcast feed because we were recording this on a Sunday <laughs> and this is going to release on a Tuesday. So I want to make sure that this word gets out and that people can share this episode with anyone yep. in the Holy Smokes community that could be interested. And yep. so that information will be in the show notes, ATN's email and his cell phone number. So if you're driving, don't worry. It's in the show notes. I will put it in there. And Etienne Hardray, man, I really want to see this happen. So. Me too. Well, it will. You know, it's one of those things, like we talked about in this entire thing, you know, about God and about his work and about the things that he just draws us into. I feel like there's enough wind in our back and enough momentum here. You know, I almost don't even go in there anymore with, you know, looking at it the way it is, but I see it now the way God is going to make it. And so for me, it's almost already a done deal. It really feels good. Etienne Hardray, let's get to rapid-fire questions. All right. Hey, everyone. Before we get to the rapid-fire segment, I wanted to talk about a way that you, as a listener, can support the show and the growth of Holy Smokes by becoming a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash holysmokes. Patreon is a support platform, and for as little as $5 a month, you can get bonuses like ad-free versions of these podcast episodes, Holy Smoke swag like t-shirts, and more. That's patreon.com slash holysmokes. We're looking to get 40 Patreon supporters at an average of $10 a month. And once we hit that, we'll be able to pay for all the costs for hosting, editing, writing, posting. I won't be paying for that out of my pocket or through the volunteering of my own personal time. And as we grow that number to 100 and 150, 200 patrons, we'll be able to do two shows a week, hire a part-time assistant, web developer, record on location and around the world, and more. I want to visit groups and get those stories from so many of you listeners that I hear from. I want to go to Seattle, and I want to go to Dallas, and I want to go to Charleston, South Carolina, and I want to go to Kentucky, and Chicago, and Phoenix, Atlanta, D.C., Charlotte, back to Southern California, and more. We want to help grow your groups and plant new ones for those of you in areas without active groups. So, can you help us out? Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. There's a link in the show notes. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. Or if you want to make a one-time tax-deductible gift, go to paypal.me slash holy smokes club. That's paypal.me 
slash Holy Smokes Club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. Fire. Here. All right. Cigars or pipe? I started with pipe, but I go for cigars because they're easier to handle. I can focus more on the conversation and less on the tending. When did you first try your first cigar? Mm, man, that's a tough one. I don't remember. It was somebody at Holy Smokes gave me my first cigar. I'm pretty sure of it. And if I had to guess, it was probably something in the Rocky Patel line. But I do remember the first time that I went to the Rocky Mountain Cigar Festival. And I got that whole entire grab bag of cigars. I think I smoked almost all of them within the next week. And I tried just this amazing array of different cigars. So for me, it was more, that was my entry into everything. I began to develop my tastes after that. So I can't really say, there was never a ceremonial kind of like, this is my first one. I can't really remember what that is. Because I was there for the people anyway. So Favorite cigar. Ooh. That's a tough one because I like so many different kinds. Right now, though, the one that I go to that is still inexpensive, very high quality, never lets me down, and most people don't know about, so I'm happy to share it, is the Ramon Bueso Genesis The Project. Mm. Fantastic stick, still relatively unknown, dark wrapper, tightly packed, but I punch them, and they're still easy to draw. It's a Maduro, but it's a mellow kind of smoke. Not too spicy. It won't give you that big, heavy nicotine hit when you get down toward the end. Just an easy, go-to, everyday smoker. Best dollar-for-dollar dollar cigar. Well, so I would say the Ramon Bueso falls in that category for sure, because that's going to be... I mean, online, I can get them for around the $2 range. Mm. So when you're talking about an everyday smoke, you got to be at the 2 to $3 range. What else would be another good one that would fall in that category? The Alec Bradley line is dollar for dollar is still probably the best that you can get. You can still get Alec Bradley Prensados for four bucks. And those won Cigar of the Year a few years back and still a fantastic smoke. If you can get the box pressed, I think the Prensados box pressed, but they've got like a double Rosado size, which is like a Churchill length, but it's like a 50 ring gauge box press. And it's just a fantastic stick, good price. If I'm going to drop some money on what I know is a quality cigar, I'll get the Alec Bradley Prensado. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? Well, I've had the privilege of smoking some pretty expensive ones. My wife just got me, which is probably the most expensive one. I haven't smoked it yet, but she just got it for me for my birthday. That's the Padron 1926 Anniversary Edition. Mm. That one will be the most expensive one I've smoked. I think up until that point, it's the 1964 I bought a box of the 1964s from Padron. And those are probably the next most expensive one I've had. The go-to place to get smokes. So I like going online just because I smoke so many cigars that I have to get them in quality. Here in Colorado Springs, I go to Stag Tobacconist because it's really easy to try some good stuff there. They've got a phenomenal team there, so I really like Stag. But online, of course, these guys are going to be for everywhere. I go to Cigar Bid, and I get most of my stuff there. Thompson had their auction site for a while, but they've shut it down. I used to like Thompson Auctions a lot, but Cigar Bid's the next best place to go, in my opinion. Favorite liquid pairing with your smokes? Yeah, bourbon. Bourbon of all kinds. Although, if we go into the scotch category, it's a Laphroaig, hands down. Laphroaig 10-year, 
It's still a good quality, easy to drink, very peaty, but it's got the most unique flavor of all the whiskeys, and it's still a reasonable price. If you want to go Highland single malt style, then the Balvenie Caribbean cask is by far the best scotch you can get for under $100. It's the 14-year. And then when it comes to bourbons, I'm drinking an Old Forester right now, which is a delicious option. But what I get all the time at the cigar bar is Weller. So Weller's, I think it's called the Special Reserve, is surprisingly turning into a very value bourbon. Weller is produced by Buffalo Trace and is a very high quality bourbon. And it's generally very hard to find because they only release so many bottles to each location. But there are a couple of bars here in Colorado Springs that have it as their well bourbon. And that blows my mind. So you can still get it at six or eight bucks a shot. And that is just a phenomenal deal for a quality bourbon like that. So I'll drink a Weller all day long. Most memorable cigar experience. Hmm. Well, that's kind of a toss up. The first most memorable cigar experience I've had is when my wife picked up cigars. Smoking cigars with my wife is always a good experience. And it reminds me daily of how blessed I am. So that is my most memorable single experience, but it's turned into a series of experiences. But if I had to pick my second most memorable cigar experience, it would be the first Holy Smokes cruise that we went on, which I think was the second official Holy Smokes cruise. It was to the Western Caribbean. And there must have been a dozen or 15 of us, husbands and wives. And we went on this Holland American boat that was on the back deck, was the smoking section. And we would get up every morning, first thing, get our coffee, go straight out there. As soon as the bartenders saw us, they would start arranging the tables because they knew a big crowd was coming. And we would sit out there all day long telling stories and singing songs and just hanging out with one another. That is going to go down in history as my favorite time smoking cigars. And traveling with the Holy Smokes crowd has just been something we do all the time now. Marvel or DC? I'm a Marvel guy. You know, Marvel's the fun one. DC's the serious ones. <laughs> Star Wars or Star Trek? I grew up on both, but I read Star Wars way before I ever started Star Trek. So while I like the original Star Trek, I'm a Star Wars guy. Favorite food? Huh. My favorite food is probably something a Holy Smokes guy turned me on to. He calls it Texas eggs or something like that. It's chicken thighs with jalapenos and smoked gouda wrapped up and held together with toothpicks wrapped in bacon and then grilled on the barbecue and then you slice those bad boys up that is the most amazing thing I've ever had anybody bring to a Holy Smokes gathering and it's still one of my favorite foods dogs, cats, neither, both well my wife's a cat girl so we grew up with cats like bleeding out our ears but honestly I like dogs I'm a dog guy nickname Growing up or college? ATN is my name. So most people can't ever pronounce it. So I have every nickname under the sun. ATM is probably the closest, <laughs> the most common nickname. Most people remember my name that way. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? Hmm. Well, there's probably quite a few. I can play the flute. Most people don't know that about me. Really? I'm a pretty good juggler. I picked up these miscellaneous skills. 
every country I've ever been to, I pick up enough of the language to get by in a taxi. Interesting. Yeah, so I've learned Amharic and Thai and Lao and Spanish and French and German, just enough of it to sort of get by. And I love doing that. Every time I travel anywhere, That's cool. I try to pick up just enough of the language to get by. Favorite book not titled The Holy Bible? Well, I'll give you two. One for fun and one for like Christian reading. The first one is The Greatest Night by Elizabeth Chadwick. It's about the life history of William Marshall, who was a knight, an undefeated tournament knight. He trained Richard the Lionhearted in how to be a knight. So this is the era that he's in. It's a historical fiction. It's a great read, and it's all about men and women in a time when manliness was hard to come by and honoring women was hard to come by, and it's a fantastic story. Second one, probably like Christian reading or like how to be a man kind of thing is Fathered by God by John Eldridge. And that is, Mm. in my opinion, one of his best works. And it really helped me Mm. get to the place where I realized that in all the times when I hadn't had a father, God himself had stepped in and been that father for me. Mm. It's a good book. All right. Last two. If you were to have holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased... Yep. Who would they be? Can't name Jesus. Well, I get the beautiful part of that. I get to smoke with most of the people I really want to smoke with almost every week. So I'll just assume all those people already know I would love to have cigars with them. I guess really interesting people throughout history that I might like to smoke a cigar with. I'd love to smoke a cigar with Peter. Mm-hmm. Peter's a guy I resonate with. He's awesome. Um, all in. I know. Man, he's all Where in. Where else would we go, Lord? I know. I know. And talk to him about... The only one that stepped out of the boat. He's the only one who stepped out of the boat. Eleven guys were sitting in that boat, probably. And he was the only one who stepped out and walked on water with Jesus. I'd love to have a conversation with him. Another guy that resonates with me through scripture and history is the prophet Daniel. Mm. Because he stayed true and constant in a time when... I mean, he went through three different kings hostile to one another and normally you would kill or exile the previous king's advisors men yeah Yeah. and Daniel wasn't and so I would love to talk with him about what it's like to maintain your faith in a hostile environment Mm. and do it to such a degree that even the most powerful men of the day recognize that the hand of God is with you that's something unique about his life that I'd love to have a conversation with and the last one I already told you the book I'd love to sit down with William Marshall that guy is considered the most loyal guy to ever live he did a similar thing as each of the kings took each other over they continuously elected him as their marshal because they knew that he was loyal to the crown he would do what was right even when it was painful to him Mm. And he was the second son of a disgraced Lord who just fought his way to the top. And I feel like that myself. I feel like I'm just a nobody from nowhere that just through grit and perseverance and doggedly following Jesus as hard as I can, that I can make it somewhere. That I can do something significant for the world. And he did something significant for the world. So I'd love to sit down and talk with him about it. Plus, he's just a man's man, undefeated tournament champion. It'd be awesome. Last question. Mm-hmm. I think I know the answer to this, but we're to sit down one year from today, mm-hmm. and I got a bottle of champagne. What are we celebrating? Oh, man. We'll be in our new Holy Smoke Cigar Bar. Beautiful place around us. 
We'll be reminiscing about all the hard work over the last year, what it's taken to get it to this place. Our friends will be sitting around with us. We will pour out the champagne for everybody else and we'll dig into the expensive bourbon and we'll have a toast to all the people who came with us. And, and the new the cool friends. Stuff. And, and the, the new, new friends, friends that yeah. will have found Holy Smokes through what I believe will be a beacon in the city. Absolutely. I mean, that's going to be absolutely transformative. The rest of this year is going to be focused purely on making that a beautiful thing. And so if there's anything we're going to celebrate, it's going to be that. That's going to be worth celebrating. Holy Smokers, let's get this done. ATN Hardaway, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. I love you, brother. You were one special dude. Thanks, Steve. Love you too, man.